If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What makes Cornwall different from the rest of England? Is it history or geography that sets the area apart? And how have the industries of fishing, mining and tourism all transformed the face of the region? Cornish-born historian and writer Tim Hannigan is the author of The Granite Kingdom, A Cornish Journey. And he addresses these questions in conversation with David Musgrove. Tim began with a reminder of Cornwall's peculiar geography. Cornwall is, to put it most simply, the southwesterly peninsula, the southwesternmost peninsula of mainland Britain. So it's the, the leg that sticks way out at the bottom left of mainland Britain. I like to to try and put Cornwall in a slightly different perspective. I like to swing the map around um, so we're not looking at it in its conventional positioning, which is always centred on London. I like to try and centre the map on Cornwall itself. So if you imagine turning it upside down so Cornwall is sort of sticking, sticking vertically upwards instead of slanting away down at the bottom, then you kind of see where it where it sits in its wider context because it's it's pretty much equidistant between Brittany uh, sticking out from, from mainland Europe, from France, which is another peninsula with lots of cultural commonalities with Cornwall, and then on the other side, the southern bits of Ireland, the Cork and Kerry. And then actually just sticking over its shoulder there is, is Wales. So it's it's part of that Western Atlantic network of interlinked places, so Ireland, Wales and Brittany. Cornwall's really at the heart of that, that um, Atlantic world. Just on the landward side, though, can you just remind us or, or tell us, for those who don't know, where the border of Cornwall is uh, with the rest of what is now England? Where's, what's the line and what does it border to the east? So the, the immediate neighbour of Cornwall is the county of Devon, and there's inevitably some sort of petty rivalry between the two. But the, the bulk of the border, it's not quite as simple as it might seem, but the bulk of the border is made up of the River Tamar, um, which rises very close to the north coast, but then runs south. So it runs for about 50, 50 miles. It's only four miles from the sea on the north coast, but then it runs all the way down to come out at Plymouth on the south coast. And that that forms the bulk of the border. And that has been the border between Cornwall and initially quite explicitly England as, as separate places, as the emergent England, um, since the 10th century. And that actually uh, is this little known point that actually makes the Cornish, the Cornish border, the River Tamar, one of the, if not the oldest quasi-national frontiers in the whole of Europe. We're often told, if you, if you sort of Google it, what's the oldest national frontier in Europe? Um, Andorra is often mentioned, but that's, that's a couple of hundred years younger than, than the River Tamar as a, as a quasi-national frontier. So it's, it's a very old, very long established border that... Um, people from Cornwall certainly take very seriously. Do we know what Cornwall actually means, what the origin of the of the name of the county is? Well, we know what the wall bit is, uh, definitely. Um, and it has the exact same etymology as Wales, which is 
possibly slightly better known than than the Wall of Cornwall. But it is the, the English, or I should say old English, Anglo-Saxon word that was given to these, these two places um, that we now know as Cornwall and Wales. And that word was, was Waylas, which was the Anglo-Saxon word for it's specifically non-Anglo-Saxons, non-English. It sometimes gets translated as foreigners or, or strangers, but the best way to think of it is just not us, them, the other. So it was the English word for, for Wales and for Cornwall, Waylas. Those places uh, had their own names for their for the place. Wales, we know, is Cymru and, and Cornwall is, is Curnow. But in English, they became Wales and Cornwall. The corn bit of Cornwall is probably from the the local name. The modern Cornish word for Cornwall is Kerno. Where that Kern or corn bit actually comes from, we're not entirely sure, but it's probably got an etymological link to Cornu, which would be uh, a Latin word in origin, meaning horn. And if you think about what Cornwall looks like, I explained earlier, it's that bit that juts out. So it probably has something to do with the form of the place, a, a horn-like peninsula sticking out. So it's corn wall it's the 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 foreigners of the the horn-like peninsula that's what the english name cornwall actually means so it's it's otherness it's separateness from england or certainly anglo-saxon territory is is really right there explicit in the name just as the name wales is okay so there's etymology there that probably relates to the 8th 9th 10th period and what you just talked about there but let's go back a little bit earlier before we drop into that what do we know about the early origins of of the settlement of cornwall it's a it's a place that's famous for many things but one of the things and, and a thing that i love about it is is all its prehistoric megaliths and standing stones what do we know about the early early settling of the place as you say, Cornwall is like a lot of those Atlantic peninsulas and islands that that are interconnected with Cornwall. It's just spectacularly rich in tangible archaeology. It's all on the surface, and and it's not it's not roped off. You don't have to pay to get into any of it. It's just there, jumbled up with much more much more recent stuff. Part of that's just down to the geology of the place. It's it's a stony a stony area in significant parts made of granite. So all that stuff's on the surface. So Cornwall was first inhabited by people as far as we know about 10,000 years ago and initially small numbers of hunter-gatherers just left very very limited traces Um, but from from the Neolithic period from about 6,000 years ago it seems to have been permanently settled there seems to have been um, communities who rooted in the landscape um, who began to build quite spectacular um, funerary monuments the oldest Significant structures in Cornwall are what are called in Cornwall coits, but are often known as cromlechs or dolmens elsewhere. You'll find similar things in Wales and Brittany and, and Ireland. Are traditionally understood as as tombs, but we tend to think of them as slightly more complicated than that in these these days, possibly as, as central focuses for communities or ritual centres as well as places of burials. They're those great big stone mushrooms that might be six or eight feet tall, usually four huge upright stone slabs and then a massive capstone sitting on top of them. And those date from the Neolithic period. And that really marks the beginning of a permanent human presence in the landscape, but also that that interaction with the landscape. 
throughout the later Neolithic period and into the Bronze Age, you get a massive amount of ritual building again. And huge swathes of Cornwall seem to be this kind of living ritual landscape from the late Neolithic or early Bronze Age, stone circles and standing stones, very often arranged with a kind of reference to a prominent hill. Um, it's Routor in East Cornwall, which is second highest hill on Bodmin Moor. And then in the West, where I'm from in Penwith, it's two hills, Carnkinidjik and Carngalva seem to be the reference points. Um, and then, you know, Bronze Age gives way to the Iron Age, by which stage Cornwall was really tied into European trade networks because of the tin and copper. I mean, it's one of the, one of the major tin and copper producing, uh, regions in, in Europe. And tin, copper, and also gold and lead and silver from Cornwall was, we know, was traded widely throughout Europe and down into the Mediterranean and, and even beyond. So Cornwall was linked linked from a pretty early stage into those, those networks. That's a, a very good point for me to bring back in that concept that you mentioned earlier of swinging the map around, because I recall a conversation I had with Professor Barry Cunliffe for this podcast um, a little while ago, where we were talking about kind of the, the prehistory of Brittany. And he was he was making the point that Brittany and Cornwall were very much linked by the seaways across the channel and, and sort of invited us to think about things in a different way. Is that kind of the point you're trying to get at, that Cornwall's centre of gravity doesn't necessarily pivot towards the rest of England? England and Britain and and equally you know could well have 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 gone to to Europe because of the usefulness of of seaways in prehistory for for navigation. Yeah and and not just prehistory much much more recently than that. We we're kind of conditioned to think of the sea as an isolating element. Partly that's because we don't use it for transport to the same extent that it was for the longest time, but it was for the longest time the fastest and easiest way to travel long distance was was the sea. And it was the only way really to ship large quantities of stuff in single units was was the sea for, for, for a very, very, very long time. Um, and we seem to have somehow forgotten that. I think the other factor is the, the kind of island nation narrative around Britain, which the origins of that, well, that can be, that's another topic for another, another conversation. But we do forget that the sea was a, a linking rather than an isolating element. And I think Cornwall and Brittany are a great illustration of that because the Cornish language and the Breton language are very, very close. They're, they're effectively dialects of the same language. And right until um, right until the end of Cornish as a, as a widespread community language in the 18th century, Cornish and Breton were mutually comprehensible. A Cornish speaker from Cornwall could step ashore on a harbour side in Brittany without speaking French and without knowingly speaking Breton, they could buy their groceries. They could sell their fish in their own native language and be understood by Bretons. And Bretons came to Cornwall. There was a lot of Breton settlement in Cornwall. Breton fishermen came over for shorter stays. And the language, they, they spoke effectively the same language. So somebody from at the far west of Cornwall, somebody from somewhere around Penzance in, let's say, the 17th century, would have found it easier to communicate with somebody from Roscoff or Brest than to communicate with somebody from Exeter or Bristol or London. Um, they may very well have spoken English, but English would have been their, their second language. They may not have spoken English particularly well, but they could use their own first language, Cornish, to talk to Bretons and be understood. So that really hammers home that point that you can be on the same island, the same large island, but not have this close cultural commonality as people on a neighboring landmass, 
that you're connected to by the sea. Um, and I think yeah, Cornwall and Brittany are a perfect example of that. Sure. So where would you place the origins of the Cornish separateness from the the rest of England? Um, where does it come in? Is it is it way back into prehistory or is it, as you were talking about a little bit earlier, more to do with Anglo-Saxon settlements um, in the, well, from the post-Roman period almost? Yeah, so it's a hugely complicated question. And I think there are just multiple, multiple layers to it. I think it's fairly obvious that Cornwall's earliest major connections would have been by sea. So uh, right from the earliest stage of Cornwall's settlement, it would have been quite closely linked to Brittany, to Southern Ireland, uh, probably to, to South Wales as well, because those were the easiest places to get to. It was quick. You got in a boat and you could be there in a, in a day or in a couple of days. If you wanted to travel to eastern England, somewhere around where London is today, that actually that in itself was probably best done by sea. But if you went overland, it was it was a tough and difficult journey. So I think from the very early stages, Cornwall, Cornwall's closest, most obvious connections were to those those places. And I think you still get little glimpses of that today. Um, my my home place in the far, far west is on the north coast of the Penwith Peninsula, north of Penzance. And when there's high pressure, when the weather is clear, we cannot listen to BBC radio because we get the Irish radio. Um, it just comes floating in across the, across the Celtic Sea and knocks off the broadcasts from London because Ireland is closer. There's nothing in the way. Um, so, you know, that connection was always there. What began to crystallise Cornwall as a, as a distinct place, the distinct place apart that it kind of still is today, I think definitely was the Anglo-Saxon settlement. Cornwall comes into being as Cornwall in concurrence, in tandem with the emergence of England. We were talking about the name earlier. The name of Cornwall explicitly has that, that word Waylas, same as Wales, which, which means effectively un-English. So Cornwall becomes Cornwall because England exists. And that really is the origins of Cornwall as it is today. Cornwall, although a lot of Cornish people, certainly all Cornish nationalists would say Cornwall is definitely not England, Cornwall exists as Cornwall because of England. And you could say the same thing about Wales as well. You made that interesting point earlier about uh, the, the possibility of the Cornish-English boundary being one of the earliest national boundaries. When when does Cornwall become subsumed into the wider English polity. Yeah, again, that's a, that's a very complicated question and doesn't really have a have a clear answer. We're dealing with with the shady, hazy, murky, contradictory, fragmentary Anglo-Saxon chronicles for our sources around this, and it's very hard to absolutely pin it down. But somewhere between the seventh and the tenth century, as Anglo-Saxon Wessex rises and pushes its way west and then becomes the kind of uh, the the point around which a wider english state gathers and and conglomerates um somewhere in amongst that cornwall seems to have gone from being something that was that was sort of uh, set against that as as an independent entity to something that was in some way underneath English or Anglo-Saxon suzerainty somehow somehow acknowledging um, supremacy of these English kings without becoming English. It remained 
sort of British, a place of waylass, uh, these these foreigners or these non-English people. Uh, so it's so it's hard to say exactly where and when it happened. Um, we know that the border, or we, we're fairly sure that the border was fixed in the middle of the 10th century by um, Athelstan, who's arguably arguably the first proper English king. Um, why? We're not entirely sure. Uh, Cornwall had had almost certainly already been under some some kind of wider English domination at that point, but for some reason Athelstan formalised the Tamar as this this border between Anglo-Saxons and and Britons, uh, proto proto Cornish. So really, that setting of the border is where Cornwall becomes becomes fixed. And it sets it up to endure, even though it did end up being, for the most part, administered as an English county as England developed over the subsequent um, thousand years or so. It it still retained that slight aura of difference, that slight aura of separateness, unlike Cumbria, which started out in the same kind of condition, a place that was occupied by Britons. Uh, non non English with their own their own chiefs or kings speaking a Brythonic language that vanished uh, ceased ceased to be distinct in the way that Cornwall was and I think part of the reason for that is that geography and that very obvious border as Cornwall and the Cornish always had an active independence movement then you mentioned you know that perhaps some people today might query the the presence of the boundary even as it stands has there always been people who've pushed back against english overlordship i suppose it depends what you mean by always again all of these questions uh have to uh, you have to hedge when you're answering them there would certainly be a narrative uh, amongst people who would um, identify as Cornish nationalists today that presents the entirety of Cornish history as one of resistance. There were certainly military engagements between Britons, proto-Cornish, and Anglo-Saxons back in that period between the 6th and the 10th century. We know there were. And there are people who will argue that that has continued right the way down through. It was always, always a story of resistance. Personally, I don't think that is actually true. I think that narrative is a very modern construct. I think um, in the 19th, the 18th, the 17th century, most Cornish people would have uh, been, yeah, less explicit about the idea of Cornwall being uh, utterly distinct from England. I think there was a slow process of assimilation. But the really remarkable story is the fact that a kind of kernel of difference did endure through all of that. Um, There were certainly periods where Cornwall produced rebellions. In the 15th and 16th century, it produced uh, two very well-known ones, one in 1497 and uh, one in the middle of the following century, which is the the biggest and best-known one, the Prayer Book Rebellion, which is often presented as being a kind of ethno-nationalist revolt against uh, against the Reformation, against the the intrusion of the English language into into church services. That's a a gross oversimplification. Um, That was a factor for some people, but most of Cornwall was speaking English by that stage. And there were similar similar resistances to the Reformation um, all across England in the period in the same period. So it's slightly wishful thinking to to portray that as being some kind of Celtic ethno-nationalist revolt against against English colonization. I, I think that does a disservice to the complexity and the and the um, ambiguities of Cornwall. 
Well, happily for listeners to the podcast, if you want to get into the complexities of that, then we've got an episode which is uh, all about the Prebit Rebellion with Professor Mark Stoyle. So, um, so you can listen to that to to answer some of those simplifications and get more get more nuance. Um, is there a definitive moment where Cornwall is part of England, where an English king sort of specifically says Cornwall is is part of of my realm? Um, n- no, but then. Presumably, when Athelstan fixed that border back in the middle of the 10th century, he regarded it as as some kind of vassal of his. So I think we can we can assume that by that point, English kings, right from the very very beginning, were regarding Cornwall as as theirs, but they were not regarding its people as their people. I mean, quite quite explicitly, it was the land of Wales. It was they were Britons, and that idea of a distinction between English and Britons, that survives and continues and is still still present after the Norman conquest. And you still get talk of people in Cornwall and people in Wales being Britons and then people everywhere else being English um, into, into the, the, the 12th and 13th century. So that distinction was still there. So I think right from the get-go, right from Athelstan, Cornwall was regarded by the English state as belonging to them, but somehow being extraordinary or peculiar not quite not quite part of the 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 same the same framework as everything else okay let's move on from that i'd like to talk a little bit about some of the sort of the main industries that have uh, dominated cornwall we've talked about the fact that it's a, a basically a maritime province fishing has clearly always been an important part of the place's economic activity. What can you tell us about that? How long has it sort of dominated the Cornish economic picture for? Well, uh, you know, Cornwall's a coastal place, so Cornwall has uh, has always looked to the sea, and and fishing has fishing has been part of Cornwall's heritage as yeah, as far back as as far back as people have have been there. There have been excavations of Romano-British and Iron Age period. Uh, settlements where the floors of the houses were just full of trampled fish bones. So fish was clearly a hugely important part of people's diet from from the earliest stage. Obviously, it would be. The really interesting and distinctive aspect of Cornwall's fishing economy and fishing culture was the, the pilchard industry, which we, we tend to associate with the 18th and 19th century, but it, it goes back goes back far, far earlier than that. There was a well-organized pilchard fishery on quite a large scale, certainly going on in the 16th century and and probably well well before that i mean those are the, the earliest records of it uh in the in the 15th 16th century but but presumably went on much earlier than that and this is a, a really a really distinctive unusual and distinctly cornish communal way of fishing so pilchard shoals huge huge shoals of pilchards would come up along the coast of cornwall in in late summer and into the autumn and they were harvested using seine nets, these, these huge, huge nets, which were worked very close to shore. Um, spotters on the clifftops would keep an eye out over the, the coast, and they would be able to see the pilchard shoals as they came ashore. You could see the, the shadowing on the water and see the, the flocks of seabirds on the top. And they would direct open boats out into the water who would cast these these huge huge nets um around around a shoal of pilchards and they could net multiple millions of fish in a in a single in a single net 
they would then kind of drag it into the shallows. But the, the nets were too big and the shoals were too big to, to draw up into the boats. These are small open rowing boats or to draw onto the shore. So they then had to take the fish out of the bigger net using sort of smaller nets, which were called a tuck net, which was a kind of miniature version of the same thing. And it could take them three days to empty a net once they got a, got a shoal captured. Um, and the fish were initially in the early days, they were smoked. But then as as it developed as a major export um, fishery, they were salted. They were preserved in salt and packed into barrels and exported to uh, particularly to the Mediterranean, in particular to, to Italy. It was peculiarly run on a very, very simple structure with open rowing boats. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Cornwall's fishing industry to this day is not as well capitalised and is dominated by smaller boats than the the big fishing ports of the East Coast. Um, Because as an industrialised fishery, it it was done close to shore with open rowing boats. Would I be all right in assuming that, given the the seafaring heritage of the place and the fact that Cornwall is so dominated by by ocean, that Cornish ships and Cornish sailors formed a substantial part of the wider English and British maritime imperial story? Cornwall was at the forefront of maritime British history. Uh, And again, that takes us back to the idea of the sea as the main communicating element. Cornwall was the main point of entry for international traffic into Britain for a very long time. If you were approaching from the West, if you're approaching from the Atlantic, if you're approaching from the Bay of Biscay, the first safe landfalls, the first major ports were in Cornwall, in particular the Fal Estuary, which is a huge natural harbour on the south coast of Cornwall, sheltered by the Lizard. And Falmouth, Falmouth developed as the preeminent international port for Britain. That was where the transatlantic mail packets um, made landfall. That was, prior to that, that was generally the first place people ran into when they were sailing from the Americas, from Africa, from Asia. Falmouth was where you came ashore. Falmouth was where you cleared customs. So Cornwall and Cornish sailors were yeah very much at the forefront of the age of sail. It was the shift to to steam as the dominant, the dominant power for maritime traffic that drew that away from Cornwall. Um, once you could s- just plow straight on up the English Channel to Bournemouth and Southampton, then Cornwall kind of fell by the wayside, and Cornwall's ports went to being backwaters. But in the age of sail, Falmouth was was. The equivalent to the to Heathrow Airport, Heathrow Airport and Dover. Okay, what about mining? Tell us about the role of mining in uh, in the Cornish story. Obviously, it's a very important part of its economic story. It is, and it's it's ancient, and it again takes us back to those those sea networks and those links. I was saying a little bit earlier that um, from certainly from the Bronze Age onwards, Cornwall was linked into European trade networks through its its metal through the the ores that are there in the bedrock of Cornwall. Cornwall's underpinned by by granite. There's a huge granite intrusion that lies underneath the whole of the Cornish Peninsula. Uh, and it's it's very heavily mineralized. So it's it's full of tin ores and copper ores and and various other things, gold and silver and lead and so on. And that was uh was harvested, was mined from from the early stages, from from the Bronze Age. It was initially gathered at the surface People would kind of hack into visible seams in cliff faces, or they would work along valleys, um, sifting the alluvial matter 
to to get the the heavy ores out of it and because the rock was just so hard they couldn't really very effectively dig to any great depth underground but there was a lot of stuff at the surface so for for thousands of years that was the main mode of mining uh, in the medieval period they gradually began to go a little bit deeper underground but as soon as you go underground you run into the problem of water so the greatest restriction was the difficulty in pumping water out of mines as you sank them below ground. And that kept mining fairly close to the surface um, until the 18th century. As soon as steam technology arrived, that just allowed Cornish mining to, to go berserk, um, to, to create incredibly deep mines, mines that went down on the vertical half a mile or so and might extend for hundreds upon hundreds of miles on the horizontal um and on on the diagonal following loads of tin and copper principally copper in the first instance was the the main the main focus and then tin became dominant later on in the major mining districts which would be around Campbell and Red Ruth in the far west around Pendine and St Just also around the edges of Bodmin Moor and around St Austell um it was a huge huge industry and it's it's really important to remember that Cornwall, though it's today seen as this very rural, um, almost timeless historical place, Cornwall was actually one of the first significantly industrialised places in Europe. Um, but it was also one of the first de-industrialised places uh, when the mining industry went into decline. And I suppose in some ways the mining industry has been replaced as uh, the economic driver in Cornwall by the tourist industry. What can you tell us about when Cornwall became a destination for tourism? Yeah, you'll you'll quite often get this idea that that tourism is uh, a specifically modern um, thing in Cornwall, and often often described very negatively as if it's a, a sort of blight, a disease that has come upon Cornwall. But tourism has been around in Cornwall for for a long time. What we might think of as mass tourism probably could be said to begin once Cornwall was linked into the national rail networks in the um in the, the 1850s once once it was connected up to london via mainline then you had package tourists by by the 1860s thomas cook was regularly bringing organized tours to cornwall um and there was there was clearly a tourist industry going the first sort of tented holiday camps were up and running by the late victorian period big railway hotels were opening in that sort of period as well in in places like like padstone and st ives falmouth and penzance were already known as resorts um that was often for longer term stays that was where you went to spend to spend a winter you know where the climate was a bit milder or maybe you retired um, if you were, had been in colonial service or whatever it, it was, but but actually, you know, tourism of a kind had existed before that. People coming through Cornwall, uh, as I mentioned earlier, coming coming in through the ports as they arrived from from the Americas, from Asia and Africa. So there was a service industry amongst people passing through. There was tourism of a kind there, and people people did take excursions. It was quite a common thing to arrive in Falmouth from wherever it was you'd sailed from and spend a couple of days looking around. Um, this is this is back into the into the eighteenth century, and you know, travellers and travel writers were coming quite regularly from the early early 19th century to, to tour Cornwall, to look at its features, to examine its landscapes and examine its its industries. And they would find accommodation available for them and they would find people to guide them. So tourism has been around 
in some form for a, for a good long while. And I think it stands as a traditional industry in Cornwall every bit as much as fishing or mining does. You've mentioned a few times that there is a, a sense of, of separateness of Cornwall from England, and some Cornish people would see that quite strongly, others less so, I guess. But I wonder how much of Cornish identity today is kind of a recent invention or a reinvention of imagined identities from the past. Are you asking me the awkward questions that are designed to get me into trouble? <laughs> these, are, these, are, these are definitely things that, that people, people get upset about. And I think, in a way, that that answers the question. You know, these days, if you if you look if you look at any article published online about Cornwall that mentions the word England and that mentions the word county within it, have a look at the reader comments below the line, and there'll be a flurry of angry responses saying it's not England and it's not a county. People are very insistent on calling it a duchy, which is a peculiar thing because that's really quite a recent thing. And it seems actually mainly to have emerged in the tourist literature of the early 20th century, this thing of calling Cornwall a duchy. So to answer that question, Cornish identity as it is now is very much a, a construction, a thing that has been put together, a thing that developed through the 20th century really starting in the 1900s, but in particular the 1920s, um, when the language, the Cornish language, which had been moribund, not certainly not spoken as a full language in itself, as a community language for over a century at that point, but it was then revived. Yeah, these cultural institutions were set up, old festivals were reimagined and restarted. And that, that process kind of carried on. And then in the 80s and 90s, you had a second wave of this. Uh, the Cornish flag became very prominent. More people started learning the language. More new festivals were, were set up. And I think it's, it's, it's really important to be open and honest about that because that just because those things are inventions or relatively recent creations doesn't mean they're not authentic because they, they rest on a very long history going right back into, into prehistory of Cornish distinctiveness. But what we have to be careful about is not claiming that all people were secretly speaking the Cornish language with unbroken continuity all the way through, that, you know, the, the prayer book rebellion was all about the Cornish language, that these various festivals that were cooked up in the 1920s or in the 1980s have been continued in unbroken lineage since the 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 depths of prehistory because that's that's just not true you know things like the cornish tartan which is now used as a as a quite widespread and strong badge of cornish identity that that has no historical heritage beyond the mid 20th century it was literally invented as a as a thing at that point the cornish flag uh the black and white cross of st Piran, which is ubiquitous in cornwall now it wasn't even that common when I was a child in the 80s. I mean, it was definitely there. We knew what it was, but it wasn't absolutely everywhere. And although there, there, are, there are a couple of references to it in, in 19th century texts as a historical thing, if you just showed that flag to a, a 19th century Cornish person, they almost certainly wouldn't have known what it was. Um, so the manifestations, the, the flags, the badges of modern Cornish identity, uh, we have to be... We have to be honest and open about their constructedness, but that doesn't mean they're not genuine. It's only when we try and pretend that they are ancient, ancient things going back into the time of King Arthur or whatever that they become, that it becomes problematic. Ah, now, 
we haven't talked about King Arthur. That was one of the questions on my list, which, which I've skipped past. I mean, we need to sort of wrap up a bit, but but super quickly, where does this link between Arthuriana and Merlin and Cornwall stem from? Oh, what have I done? I should have kept my mouth shut. I'm always very, very happy to skip over King Arthur. Um, we could we could just rewind and I'll and I'll not and I'll not mention him. But look, look, you've asked about King Arthur now. Um, King Arthur. Okay, so um, let's be let's be clear in the in the outset. King Arthur did not exist. There was no no British king by the name of Arthur, as far as we're aware. There's no trace of him in the the Welsh king lists. Um, in the Welsh chronologies, which is the major source for British kings of the post-Roman period, including the Cornish ones. Arthur, Arthur isn't there. He didn't exist. We we kind of assume that he was some sort of folk hero of the Britons, possibly or probably emerging at the time of the Anglo-Saxon settlement, where there would have been some kind of ethnic tension between Britons and Anglo-Saxons, so sort of Robin Hood figure possibly of resistance against the Anglo-Saxons. Inevitably, if he was this British folk hero, folk hero of the Britons, the places where those stories would endure are the places that were still still peopled mainly by Britons after the successful completion of the Anglo-Saxon settlement. So that's Wales and, Wales and Cornwall. Um, so yeah, there would have been traces of Arthurian folklore in Cornwall. But Arthur rapidly became this literary figure, beginning with Geoffrey of Monmouth um, in the 13th century, creating a, a, an entirely fabricated narrative of British history, and then picked up by various other literary figures right down to the 19th century and creating all of this, all of this romance and all of this, all of this nonsense um, around, around the idea of King Arthur, which played into tourism. I mean, it created Tintagel as a tourist destination. But as for, as for Arthur as an authentic part of Cornish history, no, there's much, much more, much more interesting and much more authentic things going on than that. And I think a real notable indication of that is the places associated with King Arthur in Cornwall, the places named for King Arthur, King Arthur's Hall, King Arthur's Coit, King Arthur's Bed, King Arthur's Graves, those are all English language place names, which tells us that they are recent. They are not Cornish language place names. Um, so that tells you that that King Arthur's presence as part of the landscape and the history of Cornwall is relatively shallow, I think. That was Tim Hannigan. The Granite Kingdom, A Cornish Journey, is published by Head of Zeus. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.